readers, my name is Jason Jeffries, and this is a bookend brought to you by Quail Ridge Books, Raleigh, North Carolina's trusted community bookstore. My guest today is Annabelle Abbs, winner of the Impress Prize for New Writing in the Spotlight First Novel Award. We are discussing her novel, The Joyce Girl, which was published in the UK in 2015 and is being published in the USA for the first time in 2020 by our friends at William Morrow. Annabelle, welcome to the program. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. This is very exciting. It's an honor to have you here. And the first thing I want to ask you is about the climate here in 2020. I'm talking to you from North Carolina. You are overseas. Uh, What is the climate surrounding COVID-19 like there? And how are you dealing with promoting an old novel overseas for the first time in these conditions? Well, we're here in London. We have, uh, I think we're sort of slightly ahead of you in terms of the curve because we are we are starting to pull out now. We are we have very few cases and uh, very few deaths. Mm. Um, so that's, that's really dropped, which is great. Um, and I think that, um, you know, there's a great feeling of relief here. There are still, there are still isolated, you know, there are isolated cases, but it's much more, uh, it's much more about sort of just track and trace now. So there might be a, a slight out, a small outbreak somewhere and they just sort of, they just go in and, and sort out that particular town or village. Um, but, but for the rest of us, we are, we are, you know, we are going out, we are traveling, we are, Absolutely. Thank you so much, Annabelle. And everyone in the world is slightly ahead of us on the curve, I think, unfortunately. Um, Not great leadership here in the United States. I do want to talk to you about this wonderful novel, The Joyce Girl. Why is it just now being published in the USA? Well, that's a very good question. So it was was published in the UK in in 2016. Mm. And uh, I had an American agent... And she was very excited and she sent it out to a few people and they, I got lots of great feedback, they loved it, but they they wanted me to um, change the ending. I said, a couple of publishers said, yes, we want to change the ending. Can you make it a little bit more cheerful? Mm. Uh, so I, you know, I, I, I'm not going to do any spoilers because I think you know, the, the life of Lucia Joyce is, you know, it's, it's, a lot of people know what happened to her. She, she ended up living for 50 years in a mental asylum and, and dying in one. So, you know, and it was quite difficult because I had to, I had to say, well, I can't, I can't really make that a cheerful, upbeat ending because that, that is just 
what happened to her. So then I thought, okay, um, you know, this book is never going to work in America. So we just decided to sort of park it for a bit. And then I got a new agent, uh, a new agent in New York, and she um, said, no, I think, you know, I think I know people who are like this. And, and, and you know, in a couple of weeks she had sold it. So I don't know if the climate had changed in those sort of intervening three years. Um, I, I, it was very strange, but anyway, obviously, I was I was um, I was delighted because mm-hmm. it's the first the first book that I've had that has um, uh, sold in the states, which of course is such a huge market. Uh, so, so that was the story of why why it's taken so long <laughs> to get to get there. Right. Well, thank you so much, and this is a, f- a fantastic book. Um, Lucia Joyce, for our listeners, of course, is the daughter of James Joyce. Um, I'm a huge Joyce nerd, uh, and there are many of us out there in the world, along with scholars of Samuel Beckett and Carl Jung. What was it like putting in? What was it like putting words into the mouths of such famous and infamous people? Was it a challenge? Because uh, I imagine there are people out there dissecting every word that you put into James Joyce's mouth. <laughs> well, I used I used a lot of his own words, so I took a lot of lines from his letters uh, from his uh, from his novels from his uh, poems so I used as much as I could I used his own words obviously I couldn't do that all the time and I have to be honest and say that I hadn't ever written a novel before mm. so when I was when I was writing it I think I had and I wasn't expecting it to be published I was just writing it I was writing it entirely for myself when I had no expectations uh, I, I hadn't ever done a, a writing course or uh, you know a, a I hadn't done a creative writing course of any sort, not even a day course. So I really just sort of sat down there and I thought, I want to understand, I want to understand what happened to Lucia Joyce. I was very moved by what had happened to her. I'd studied Joyce at university and Beckett. So the the characters felt quite familiar. Uh, I'd grown up hearing about Carl Jung all the time because my father was very keen on Carl Jung, the work of Carl Jung. So, So everyone felt quite familiar, apart from Lucia Joyce, who just sort of, disappeared and I couldn't understand why I had never heard of her so, so I sat there I thought I'm gonna I'm just gonna try and understand what it was like to be her and because I because I approached it like that um I didn't really feel this great sort of burden which I think if I I don't think I would write it again I, I mean if, I don't think I would write a book um uh possibly I'd say maybe as ambitious as that, I might be a little more circumspect now and think, oh, I couldn't possibly write about those great icons of literature. But because I, I had no expectation and I wasn't, you know, I thought I'd never be published and I wasn't intended to be published, I just thought, oh, I'll just, I'll just see what happens and I'll just, I'll just have a go. So that was, um, um, that was how I had the uh, part to, to do it. Um, and then, and then it just, started to fall into place. So I was, I was working on it for about three years, um, literally as a, a sort of a, a hobby, you know, just I'll just do a bit in the week, uh, weekends and evenings. Um, and then it, and then it sort of it got a bit more and I got more invested in it and I started traveling everywhere to all her, uh, you know, all these different houses. I would nip over to Paris, is quite close to London. You can just get a train there and you could be there in two hours. So I'd go to Paris and uh, visit all the houses where uh, the Joyce family had lived and the dance school she'd been at and the music school that her brother had been at and whatever. And it, it started to sort of take on a life of its own. And then 
uh, somewhere along the line, I had this sort of manuscript and I found out that there were writing competitions. And I showed you how naive I was because I, I didn't really know that there were writing competitions. Uh, and I thought, oh, there's all these writing competitions online. And there were some quite big ones and quite prestigious ones and some had, you know, nice prizes. So I thought, well, I've got this, I've got this manuscript and it's, you know, whatever it was, it was 110,000 words. I thought, oh, I'll just, I'll just send it in, why not? Mm. And so that was how, um, that was how my career as a writer started, which is, I know it sounds really not, not terribly sophisticated at all and not very well planned, but I do think that having absolutely no expectation from, from you know, f f to be, uh, no expectation of being a writer or of anything really, that it, it left, it gave me a lot of freedom to do things that I, I wouldn't necessarily have done otherwise. Uh, and I had, I think, a, a bit of beginner's luck. And the story, the, the thing is, the story itself is so compelling. The story of what happened to Lucia, the, the whole 1920s Paris, um, that whole, the, the whole, you know, the jazz age scene is so interesting. And everybody in her life was so extraordinary. She was just coming into contact with, uh, you know, fascinating people. And so I think that the bones of a, a story um, was already there. And I just sort of, I just put a bit of, um, a bit of meat on it, if you like. Uh, so that's a very long-winded answer to your question. <laughs> no, it's quite all right. And um, thank you. Thank you so much, Annabelle. Um, it sounds like a fascinating process. I want to ask you about the first sentence of this novel. And the first sentence of this novel reads, I stand on the deck watching the trailing seams of white foam. I'm hoping that first you can tell our listeners about this first scene, and second, I can't help but think as I'm reading this that both Ulysses and Finnegan's Wake open with a scene that is looking down upon water. Uh, I hope after you set this first scene up for our listeners that you can tell us whether or not this parallel was intentional. <laughs> I, I wish I could say it was. <laughs> but, it, but you know, it may have been... It may have been happening sublimely because I went back to all of Joyce's writings and I had I'd studied, I mean, I think I began at 16, I studied Dubliners at school, you know, his short stories. Then at 18, I did uh, a Portrait and then I got to university and I did Ulysses and I didn't do Finnegan's Wake, but I, obviously I read Finnegan's Wake uh, twice when I was writing, um, when I was writing The Joyce Girl. So, so I was really uh, immersed in Joyce's language. I mean, he is such an extraordinary writer. I mean, some of his prose it sort of leaves you breathless. Mm. So I was, I was very, I was reading him all the time, and I think um, you know a lot of, a lot of, a lot of, particularly Finnegan's Wake, because he was writing. That's what he was writing when Lucia was learning to dance and when she was having this career on, on stage. And then, of course, he was writing it when she had her breakdown and he was writing it when she was uh, in these various sanatoriums and in the mental asylum. So, so Finnegan's Wake is the book that he is, he works on it for 17 years, but during that 17 years, you know, Lucia has this meteoric rise and this meteoric collapse, really. So it's the book that really mirrors what is happening to her. And she she runs all the way through it, which of course you you wouldn't know if you were just picked up Finnegan's Wake and, and tried to read it. It's a very very 
very, very hard book to mm. read. But once you know about um, her story and her dance troupe and, uh, and all sorts of strange things, the fact that she used to practice all the time in his study. So while he's writing, while he's actually sitting there crafting it you know, in this very silent because he, he didn't like any noise and very dark he didn't like any light coming in you know she was actually doing all this silent dancing so so once I once I knew her story when I went when I started then examining um, Finnegan's Wake I just kept finding her you know, I kept finding her in so many so many different scenes and she was really and the whole dance that whole theme of dance runs all the way through it which I think if you didn't know about um Lucia and you didn't know about what the, the pair of them were going through you you possibly wouldn't really notice it but but all of that sort of leapt out at me so to answer your question um I may have been subliminally aware <laughs> at the time I think I probably thought I, I'd invented it myself that opening scene Absolutely. Thank you, Annabelle. And I, I have to say, I love Finnegan's Wake. When I was in graduate school, I spent a whole uh, semester with uh, Dr. Thomas Lisk, and we just sat in his office and read it out loud. Uh, it was a fantastic experience. Um, let me ask you about Dr. Young, whom Lucia is speaking with. Uh, in the beginning of the book, he seems to only be interested in asking Lucia questions about her father. Is this a line of yeah. questioning that is typical of Jungian psychology, or is Dr. Jung more interested in James Joyce than he is in Lucia? Well, he he is um, particularly interesting because he had a theory that he, he never really veered from, but he had a theory about why Lucia was was there, mm. and uh, he thought there was something in her in her backstory, and and he um, he was sort of slightly obsessed with what he why he thought she was there, what he thought had happened to her. Um, but the other thing was that while she was there in in Zurich, so she she moved out of Paris and she moved she moved to Zurich to have um, psychoanalysis with him. But James Joyce went with her. And James Joyce would not leave Zurich. He wouldn't go. So he, he's holed up in this hotel. You know, she's in a house just next door to Jung with a nurse. Um, and every every day, you know, she, she sneaks off to see him in his in his Zurich hotel, where, of course, he's writing Finnegan's Wake. And um, Carl, Carl Jung, Dr. Jung becomes really incensed by this. And, and, he, keep, and he says to her, and, and if you look at his, um, I mean, he got rid of all his medical notes, but he did give a couple of interviews about about her afterwards and and he just said that he could not he knew that he would never be able to help her if james joyce didn't didn't physically leave the city of zurich uh, and eventually eventually the whole relationship between jung and uh, lucia just completely broke down because um yeah james joyce wouldn't leave zurich and um she wouldn't talk <laughs> she talked for a bit and then she clammed up and and carl jung wouldn't explore other possibilities he was so fixated on on trying to get her to agree with his theory about what had happened if that makes sense so there were three very stubborn people in in that city all of whom were refusing to budge so um understandably <laughs> understandably they didn't make very much progress uh, but then he, he destroyed all his uh, kind of destroyed all his notes afterwards so um, all we know is is what he said in a couple of interviews and all we know also or I, I worked a lot from accounts of other uh, patients who had 
uh, we're having we're having psychoanalysis with Jung at that time, and so I sort of based him on their accounts of what he was like. Fantastic. Thank you so much, Annabelle. And listeners, we are going to take a short break for a word from our sponsor, and then I will be right back with Annabelle Abs. The Book and Podcast is sponsored by Libro FM Audiobooks. Libro FM lets you purchase audiobooks directly from your favorite local bookstore, Quail Ridge Books. You can pick from more than 100,000 audiobooks, including New York Times bestsellers and recommendations from booksellers around the country. With Libro.fm, you'll get the same audiobooks at the same price as the largest audiobook company out there. You know the name. But you'll be part of a much different story. One that supports community. Listeners of Bookin can get a three-month audiobook membership for the price of one. Go to Libro.fm, that's L-I-B-R-O dot F-M, and enter Bookin, B-O-O-K-I-N, in the promo code space. With each listen, take pride in knowing that you're supporting local bookstores. I'm back with Annabelle Abs, author of The Joyce Girl, published by our friends at William Morrow. Annabelle, continuing along the line of questioning from before the break, Dr. Jung, in his session with Lucia, calls her father a pornographer. How does it feel to have a pornographer for a father, he asks. And there are allusions to Ulysses as the most obscene book ever written. Annabelle, is Ulysses today, in 2020, a work of pornography? And why was it viewed as such in 1922? Yes, that's a great question, because now, of course, it seems very tame. Very, very tame. But, you know, back then, when it was published in 1922... Uh, it was shocking, really shocking. It was banned, as you know, it was banned in America, and there were all these um, all these people printing, you know, pirate versions. And, and Joyce made absolutely no money, but someone, someone, a few people in the states were making money from their sort of uh, their pirated copies they were printing off illegally. Mm. It was uh, it was banned. It was banned in the UK. It was banned in most European countries, but not Italy and not France. They were the two sort of more liberal, more liberal countries. But it, and it was it was deemed to be it was deemed to be yes pornographic. And in fact, uh, one of the English newspapers ran this huge headline. You know, this is this about, about um, you know Ulysses, this terrible work of uh, <laughs> this work of pornography. Um, so it was seen as being, um, you know, a very perverted. Obviously, reading it today, you, you know, you, you can't find anything uh, remotely obscene in it. So I think that's a sign of, of how, how much things have changed. But, you know, back then, um, everyone was trying to, certainly people in London, you couldn't buy it in the bookshops. You could only get Ill, you know, illegal copies and people were smuggling it in suitcases and it was going for quite a lot of money. And, and people were desperate to get their hands on a copy of it uh, to see what all the fuss was about. But it was a revolutionary book, but, but nothing to do with the... With the I, well, I suppose, you know, the, there's a long brothel scene. I, mean, I suppose then it was quite shocking. There's a, a long brothel scene, and then, of course, there's, there's Molly Bloom's soliloquy at the end. I, must, I guess that would have been quite shocking, too. Um, but by today's standards, no, tame, very tame. 
Yeah, absolutely. And I'm going to step away for one moment from the Joyce Girl and ask about another book that was published in the 1920s, 1928 specifically. And this book was also accused of being a work of pornography. And that book is Lady Chatterley's Lover by D.H. Lawrence. Uh, This is a work that has always interested me. The theme song for this podcast is the beginning of a song called Mrs. Chatterley. Um, Annabelle, you wrote a novel in 2018 called Frida, a novel of the real Lady Chatterley. I've not yet been able to get a hold of this book here in the U.S. I cannot wait to read it. Uh, but my question it's, for you... It's oh, it's wonderful. Coming. I can't I can't wait. Um, my question for you, Annabelle, is what drew you to these historical figures, uh, Lucia and Frida? Did you study literary works that were accused of being pornographic or modernism in general, or do the two concepts go hand in hand? Oh, well, I did, modernism was my, my, I suppose, my sort of, my big subject at uh, university. It was my favorite uh, subject that, you know, the, the yeah, the whole, the whole modernist art and literature, and I, I loved that. Um, but I didn't, I didn't think I had a, a particular fetish for banned books, but, but clearly, clearly I do like a banned book. Mm. <laughs> Um, but uh, I mean, a Lady Chatterley's Lover is interesting because, again, reading it now, it's so it's, it feels it feels again, you know, fairly uh, tame uh, by today's standards. But that was uh, really, really shocking. And in fact, that was not that was banned uh, uh, way after Ulysses. That was banned until until 1960 in the UK, and I think 1964, if I remember rightly, in the States. Mm. So that was banned for a very long time. And I suppose that that is much more, Lawrence is much more explicit in Lady Chatterley's Lover, even even than than, um, than Joyce. Um, but he, he really, he, I mean, Lawrence is really interesting because he didn't think that what he was doing was pornographic at all. And in fact, he called Lady Chatterley's Lover, he called it a tender-hearted love story. So he really thought that he was writing um, a sort of romance uh, and he was writing about um, love between uh, an, an aristocratic woman, as Frida was, and um, a sort of a working class, a working class man as he himself was. And he's really, in Lady Chatterley's Lover, I mean, the whole story of it is actually very sad because he writes it when he's dying of TB and he knows he's dying. And it's sort of his... I think it's his love letter to Frida, and he's also looking back at, at their their relationship and and how shocking their relationship was to the community that he lived in. So his coal mining community were horrified when he uh, turned up with a, an aristocrat. You know, they hated that because he had he had you know he'd overstepped the mark. And of course, her community, her German aristocratic family, were horrified when she turned up with the son of a coal miner. So, so the, in many ways, the book is much more. I mean, it's much more radical if you think of it as an exploration of of class. Um, I, I'm not even sure if he was. I think he was really just thinking of it as a as, as this love story and looking back, very um, you know, with, with a certain amount of melancholy, knowing that he's dying and really feeling that his whole life, uh, the way that his life had turned out, was was because of her. And that, that 
regret he felt he had to her and all of that is sort of acknowledged in Lady Chatterley's Lover and then of course it, it gets banned everywhere and he's, he's very very you know becomes very very angry at that and he thinks that everyone has misunderstood what the what the book's about so again that's a very um, long-winded answer to your question but one of the funny things is yeah that when going back to Lucia Joyce when Lucia Joyce uh, is, is sort of having this um, very strange sort of affair with Samuel Beckett you know she gets hold of a copy of Lady Chatterley's Lover uh, it, you know Italian was the language that the Joyce family spoke so she was absolutely fluent Italian was her first language um, and of course it, yeah, it came out in Italian so she read it uh, read it in the Italian when it first came out and she saw it as a sort of a guidebook almost a sort of manual to you know she thought she read the book and then she would know sort of you know how to behave with with samuel beckett so so that book had already i'd already sort of come across it when i was researching the joyce girl and it must have thought i just must have thought okay i'm going to log that too because of course i studied i studied lawrence too and i loved lawrence um, when I was at um, university, and my father, my father's a poet, and he, um, he, when I was growing up, he was obsessed with Lawrence. So I sort of, I always think of Lawrence as being my sort of second father. I sort of grew up to to endless Lawrence poetry being recited around around the house. Uh, so yeah, so also close to my heart. Absolutely, thank you so much, Annabelle, and. Um We've alluded to this a little bit already, but Lucia Joyce is helping her father finish work in progress, something that only Nora Joyce, Lucia's mother, knows the title to, but which we now know as Finnegan's Wake. Samuel Beckett, who you just mentioned, makes his interest, entrance mostly in this novel as a helper for Mr. Joyce. Can you tell our listeners why James Joyce needed so much help during this period on work in progress and what that help entailed? Yes, yes. So, well, there are several things. First of all, he is at this time. Joyce is going slowly blind, and he has got he has terrible, terrible problems with his eyes. He has to have leeches put on his eyes. He has cocaine injected into his eyes. I mean, the the you know the accounts of his eye treatment are really, really, um, really quite unpleasant. So he's got terrible problems with his eyes. He's in a lot of pain, and often he can't see. And so he asks Samuel Beckett, Samuel Beckett has just sort of arrived, you know, fresh off the boat, really, and uh, James Joyce asks him to come and, and work for him, sort of as his amanuensis, but, but more, more than that, really. And um, Finnegan's Wake is such a sweeping, broad novel, and the, ref- I mean, the references to every single sort of myth, every bit of the Bible, everything is sort of referenced there. So he needed someone who, um, you know, was pretty smart and pretty uh, well-read, well-educated, who could do a lot of sort of running off to libraries and tracking down old old newspapers, old magazines, old ballads, all sorts of things. So Samuel Beckett did that for him. He worked um, unpaid as his sort of, I guess you might call it, a, a personal assistant or something. And um, he was completely in awe. You know, Samuel Beckett, you have to remember, Samuel Beckett, was, he's not the Beckett that we think of, you know, that marvellous, rugged old face, you know, Nobel Prize winner, famous playwright. This is a very, very young Beckett. You know, he's 22 and he is very shy. He's very gawky. He's the first time, really, that he's, he's been out of Ireland and, and lived abroad. And he, he is fluent in, he's fluent in French and Italian. 
but he, he doesn't know that he wants to be a writer at this stage. That's the other thing. He, and it's, it's that relationship with Joyce that really determines Beckett. Yeah, makes him makes Beckett realise that he wants he wants to be a, a writer, a creative writer, rather than a scholar. So when he arrives, he's thinking of some sort of scholarly career, perhaps becoming a professor. Um, and so and so he's working in in the Joyce household, and you know they have this very um, this quite it's very intimate. They're in this they're all in this little flat together. And uh, Joyce insists on having all the curtains down, the curtains closed, the blinds down the whole time, so it's sort of dark. And um, and there they all are, you know, with, with Beckett running around fetching obscure books and also, you know, writing things out for, for Joyce as his eyesight deteriorated. And he used to take, he used to take, James, he used to take James Joyce for a walk as well. Every, every evening at five o'clock, James Joyce had to go for his, uh, his sort of his constitutional walk. And uh, Beckett would walk with him, and they would they would talk about the day's work. So uh, a fascinating relationship. Absolutely, thank you so much. And Annabel, Nora Joyce, Lucia's mother, James's wife, did not like for her daughter to dance. Why not? Well, Nora, in fact, Nora and James had come from this very um well from from very catholic very traditional very conventional ireland where no one did the sort of dancing that um lucia was doing uh, and in fact the only the only dancing they did really was they did irish jigging and the sort of dance that lucia was doing was in the manner of isadora duncan so she would uh, not wear very much. You know, she wears little little tunics or little diaphanous dresses that were quite short. Um, you know, it's the sort of things that we think of modern dancers wearing now. She would often dance barefoot, um, and the, so, so it's partly what she wore. But but worse than that, it was the fact that she was on stage making this public spectacle of herself, where people could see her legs. And if you come from a very very Catholic country, I mean, very, very Catholic country where, you know, you just do not behave like that, then that is, that is quite shocking. Of course, Lucia had not, never been, she didn't, she'd been to Ireland once, so uh, yeah, she didn't really understand. She'd grown up in Italy and, um, you know, mainly living in houses that looked onto brothels, and so she didn't really understand why, why she couldn't do this, but, but Nora, uh, it's in James as well, but he he is more able, I think, to see that dancing is very beneficial for Lucia. He sees it more as a sort of creative art form, and he he, he feeds off it as well. He, you know, sort of he manages to make it work for him. But for Nora, it's just it's it's scandalous and it's shocking, and it's Lucia's reputation. So uh, it was a real sort of, I think, a you know, a coming together there of of libertarian. Paris and and this sort of traditional um, element of of, of Catholic, you know, Catholic Ireland and and so and so Nora found it very difficult to uh, to accommodate really uh, and and see sometimes she wouldn't go to these performances and she tried to encourage Lucia to to stop dancing you know, she she would much prefer Lucia to have had a, a different sort of career. So yeah, so that was that was the issue between them really, and they never really resolved that. Right. Thank you so much. And finally, Annabelle, I want to um, 
talk about Lucia the dancer a little further. Her teacher, uh, Monsieur Borlin, I believe that is the pronunciation, after announcing to Lucia that he has entered her in the International Festival of the Dance, says to her, Let me be frank. You are my most talented student. Modern dance is the alphabet of the inexpressible, and you understand this, Miss Joyce. What did he mean, modern dance is the alphabet of the inexpressible? Well, modern, modern, or the, the dance that was um, sort of springing up across Paris at that time, um, which was things like the, the Ballet Russe and um, uh, the Swedish ballet that Monsieur Boulin, Jean Boulin came from, and they were doing very uh, experimental things. They were mixing up folk dance and jazz dancing and traditional ballet. And they were really playing with all these different uh, forms of dance and seeing how far they could take dance. And again, this was, this was really radical because before that you really just had, um, you know, you had your very classical Italian or Russian ballet. And then you had you know, country dancing. Uh, like, like the survivors jigging, or you had ballroom dancing, waltzing, but you didn't have uh, anything that was as, um, as, as sort of revolutionary, really, as, as this. And, and people didn't like, you know, there wasn't a tradition. It wasn't a tradition of um, mixing things. So you know, you either did ballet or you did a waltz. But the idea of, of, of trying to mix a, a waltz and, and, and ballet was something that was very new and very exciting. And of course, they've got all this amazing music coming from the likes of Stravinsky who are doing exactly the same things they're sort of playing with jazz rhythms and and mixing that into classical music so so that made it very that made it sort of very exciting I think and very interesting but when when he says that he is referring to um which is really important for Lucia the fact that you can dance can be dance can be a language it can be uh, very expressive it can be a way of uh showing and sharing how you feel and this was really important for Lucia because it was through her dance that she really expressed herself and dance, dance for her was was a language and so when when she's told or when uh, Nora discourages her and she's told you know she really shouldn't be dancing that is almost you know, that is like someone saying to you or to me you know you just shouldn't talk just don't talk um, and, it, and it sort of a hit at the very at the very heart of her. Um, so that's 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 what he's. So that that when he when he says that to her, that's what he's saying. He's saying you understand that dance isn't just. It's not just a series of steps. You know, it's your whole. It's your whole soul. It's who you are. Um, and they're speaking through your body and your movements. So um, yeah, and and it was. It really was for her. Yeah. Absolutely. Which is why when you know when she goes later on into the into the mental into the mental asylum, mm. the, the treatment was so particularly. I mean, the treatment was is appalling, obviously, for anyone. Mm. But I just couldn't really ever get over the fact that you know they had a dancer had been put in a straight jacket, you know, day after day after day, um, because that just seemed you know. I mean, today obviously it wouldn't happen, thank goodness. Mm. Uh, but but then. To find to, to treat someone who talks through her body by stopping her move her body um, is probably the worst the worst possible thing. 
Absolutely. Thank you so much, Annabelle. And thank you for writing this wonderful novel. There is so much that we did not cover, but when we are dealing with such legendary figures as Lucia Joyce, James Joyce, Nora Joyce, Samuel Beckett, and Carl Jung, how could we possibly cover everything? Listeners, I have been speaking with Annabelle Abbs, author of The Joyce Girl, published by our friends at William Morrow. Annabelle, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you very much. Once again, I would like to thank Annabelle Abs for joining me. Copies of The Joyce Girl can be ordered from www.quailridgebooks.com with free shipping. I would also like to thank our sponsor, Libro.fm Audiobooks. Please navigate over to Libro.fm and enter the promo code BOOKIN. That's B-O-O-K-I-N in the promo code space to get one month of free audiobooks and support your favorite local independent bookstore in the process. My name is Jason Jefferies, and this has been Bookin'.